0: So we've been in this sermon series on John the Baptist, and if this is your first week with us, I'm sorry, but you jumped right into the beheading uh, of John uh, at the end here. Uh, but we've been in talking about John the Baptist for a number of weeks, uh, kind of this unsung hero, often of the New Testament. He does a lot of uh, wonderful things, uh, but then we don't talk about him a whole lot in the church, and that's actually not the worst thing ever, because the main part of John's message was that he was supposed to step to the side and point everyone towards Jesus. He was supposed to uh, gather the people, he was supposed to do his his baptism work, he was supposed to kind of warn them that the kingdom of of God was drawing near, and then he was supposed to move out of the way and point people and and empower Jesus. And and actually, it's, it's pretty incredible, as we read through the Gospels, there's accounts of disciples that are following John, that are with him, that are with him day in and day out. And they, there's actually an account of they get up and they leave John and they go and become a disciple of Jesus. Like that day. And, and that was actually how it was supposed to be. That was the whole point of John. And, and I think to boil it all down, and I'll get back to this later in the sermon, I think uh, the point is that John the Baptist is an important character in the New Testament, but he's not the main character. And I wonder how many of us realize that about our own lives. How many of us realize, like we, we go around pretending that we're the main character of our own story. Like that everything going on around us is all about us. That, that somehow if there was some narrator and they were filming your life as a TV show, that you would be the main character. But that's actually not what the Bible tells us is true. That we're all called to be a lot more like John the Baptist then we are like Jesus. We have Jesus, right? So who's the main character of the story? Jesus. Who should be the main character of your story? It's not you. (laughs) That's a really harsh lesson, I think, to learn. I think it's a really harsh lesson, especially right now in in our day and age. I think it's really uh, popular to, to pretend like the whole thing is about us in the first place. That we're just supposed to live our lives and we're supposed to seek uh, whatever brings us joy and whatever brings us pleasure and we're just supposed to go around and, and then at the end, maybe we were good people, maybe we weren't and then we, we get some kind of eternal reward or we don't. And like, that's the point of the whole story. But you're not the main character. Darn, exactly, right? It stings a little bit, but it's true. And the quicker we realize that as disciples of Jesus, the better off we will be. So like I said, we're here uh, all the way at the end of this sermon series on John the Baptist. And it starts uh, like this. This is uh, chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. Say, At that time, Herod, the Tetrarch, heard the reports about Jesus. So here we have Herod, he's hearing about Jesus, and, and Herod says to his attendants, the people around him, it says, Herod says, is this John the Baptist? He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. And then, actually, the text goes back in time and tells us how John died. So this is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that it tells us John is dead. So Herod is looking around, he actually sees Jesus, he sees Jesus doing his work, and and he starts to think, you know, I killed that John the Baptist guy that everyone thought was a prophet, and I was worried about killing him, and now there's this like John the Baptist 2.0 that's like doing more miracles and stuff, and and Herod, he's, he's a little superstitious, so he starts to get worried, and he's like, oh no, it's John the Baptist back. Is John the Baptist back? Is that why why this Jesus has so much power? Now we have the benefit of time to know that they're two different people, right? Uh, But then here in Matthew, it actually goes back in time and it tells us what happened to John. And that starts in verse 3. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people, because they considered John a prophet. Now sometimes when we read scripture, don't you kind of want more context? Don't you kind of want to know like deeper what's going on? Okay, we get a little hint here. He's married his brother's wife. What's that all about? Uh, This is actually a really fascinating story because we have this other source that's not the Bible, this other historical source. It's written by a Jewish historian named Josephus. Uh, He's written many things. If you just look up that name, there's a number of books, and, and they're kept account of. So he's Jewish himself, but he's writing for a Roman audience. And he gives us so much more detail. He actually tells us about when John the Baptist was killed. So this is separate from the Bible. This is a different document. And he gives us all these details. And I'll give you uh, a little hint as we go into it. Josephus has no love for Herod. He has no love for Herod the Great. And he has no love for this Herod. And actually from Josephus, we learn that there are six Herods. And they're, they're in the Bible. There's... There's six Herods in the Bible. I'm just going to walk you through them. They make sense when we start talking about it. But Herod just means like son of a hero is what the name means. So, so it's, a, it's a title. It's, it's a great name. So there's Herod the Great. That's the one when Jesus is born. Right? And he's king over the whole area. Uh, he controls all. Of, he's under the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire has kings that are, that are locally controlling each area. And as long as the king does two things, they're allowed to stay in power. As long as they keep paying taxes, that's the big one. And the second one, and as long as they don't have rebellions going on. So keep things calm, keep things easy, and keep paying us money, and we'll let you be king of your own little country if you want. Right? So that's how the Roman Empire was working at the time. So we have Herod the Great. He's He's the king when Jesus is born. He rules under the Romans. Herod the Great had ten wives that we know of. Again, from Josephus. He had ten wives. He had at least fourteen children. By the end of his life, he had two wives, and he had three sons. And he's the reason he doesn't have the other ones. He was paranoid, and he was brutal, and he was terrible. He... He, in the last few years of his life, brought two of his sons, his two oldest sons, uh, into his throne room and accused them of trying to take his power, and he had them killed. Four days before his death, and we're told, again, from this other source, that he died of of an infection, four days before his death, he had the, the next oldest killed. So he's got three sons left now. And Herod the Great dies. He has three sons. And how it worked in Roman times, so when we think about like a king and then the next king and the next king, kind of how it goes, we actually kind of have this medieval European mindset normally where we think that the next king is just going to be the oldest son of the previous king. And that's not exactly what happened. So they actually split property. They split the kingdom between the sons. That's how it worked back then. The oldest son did have a benefit. He got twice as much. So if there's three sons, now there's one son who's ruling half and two sons that are each ruling a fourth of what their father had. Does that make sense? So we have uh, this huge power struggle. Remember, they had it all set up, right? They were supposed to be four sons. One was supposed to get a double portion, and I guarantee you, they knew he was going to pass away. They, They had it all split up. So with the loss of this oldest son, there's just chaos. These next three sons are all named Herod, and they're all in the Bible too. So we have Herod Archelaus, that's the oldest one. Herod Archelaus, he's he's the next oldest. Remember, he's not truly the oldest, he's actually like the fourth son. Uh, But he's the oldest living, so he gets a double portion. Then we have Herod Antipas, he's the one in our scripture today. And then we have Herod Philip, and we've already heard Philip's name. Herod Philip ruled north, kind of north of Galilee, above there. Uh, Herod Antipas is in the middle, and Herod Archelaus gets a double portion. He gets Jerusalem and the whole surrounding area. That's all his area. Now, before I go on, there's two more Herods. They're in the book of Acts. They have the same name, Herod Agrippa. They are actually the grandson and great-grandson of Herod the Great. We won't talk about them today, because they're later on. They're in the book of Acts. So there's six Herods. How many of you knew there were six Herods in the Bible? It's a little confusing, right? I I, I thank God that we have Josephus to help us figure out what is going on here. Uh, So to continue the story, so Herod the Great dies. He has three remaining sons. They're in this power struggle. They're, They're ready to go to war with each other. One of them has a double portion. The other ones have a fourth. The word that we hear here is that Herod the Tetrarch, right? this word tetrarch, that means ruler of a fourth. So this this is telling us which Herod we're talking about. Uh, It's Herod Antipas. He's Herod, ruler of a fourth, because he rules a fourth of his father's kingdom. So technically, Herod Philip is also a tetrarch. So they're ready to go to war, and they decide better of it. They actually all get together, and they decide, we're going to go to Rome. We're going to talk to Caesar. We're going to talk to the emperor. And we're going to have him decide how this should be split up. Because they all thought, or the two younger ones said, we should get a third because you're not really the oldest anyway. Why are you getting a double portion? So they go to Rome together. Herod Archelaus, the oldest, Caesar says, you are allowed to keep ruling. You're allowed to rule half of your father's kingdom if you proved to be a good leader. Now how many of us think he proved to be a good leader? He does not. He goes home. Immediately, like within months, detailed account, within months he kills 3,000 Jewish men because they had a disagreement about something his father did. So the first, his first act as king is to basically start a rebellion within his own territory. And Caesar was not happy. And actually, within two years, he's banished from the area. He's sent to Gaul, which is modern-day France. Uh, He's sent out to Gaul, and he's not king any longer, within two years of taking over. So to replace Herod Archelaus... Emperor could either put a new king in place or he could do the other style of governing that they do, which is put governors in place. These are elected Roman leaders, so he puts a governor in place of that whole area. Uh, they start burning through governors. They really don't like this idea of foreign rule. They really, uh, it's a hard place to govern. We have actually hear of some of them in scripture too. Governor number five, they've already burned through four. Governor number five is a guy named Pontius Pilate. Right, So that's what's going on big picture-wise. So now the Roman Empire is ruling half of Herod the Great's kingdom directly with governors, foreign rulers that they've put in, Romans, and then the other half is ruled by these two sons of Herod, both named Herod. Very convenient. But we have their second name. So uh, Herod Antipas and Herod Philip. Now, Herod Antipas is a very interesting character in the Bible. So, so Herod the Great and, and also the older brother, they're just cruel. They're, they're brutal. They, they'll just attack uh, even their own people. If there's a slightest hint that they might lose some amount of power, they'll murder uh, many people. Herod Antipas was just as bad, but there's a reason why in Luke 13, Jesus calls him a fox. Herod Antipas was more sneaky than he was cruel. He knew how to stay in power. He knew all he needed to do was to keep rebellions down and keep paying taxes. And and if he could gain more power in the meantime, he'd have an even better life. When they went off to Rome, the three brothers... One of the things that Herod Antipas did was seduce his brother Philip's wife. According to Josephus, this historian, it was to crush his brother Philip morally. It According to another source, they said that maybe they were in love. I don't know. <laughs> The, the whole point of what's going on, this is really, really Roman events, okay? If you read anything of Roman history, if you understand the kings, you understand the emperors, you understand what's going on, this is, it's so, it's so Roman, what's happening right now. And, and that's part of the reason why the Jewish people hate it so much. Because there's like, there's so much going on here that, that this isn't how we do things in our own culture. You're acting like these foreign oppressors. That are over. You say that you're our king, you say that you're one of us, but you're acting like that. Right? And you're using that power and you're using that influence to crush our own people. So Herod Antipas, he's crafty and he's smart and he knows how to gain power. So he actually starts building a series of palaces right on the border. Some of them are actually in the land that's not even his own, you know, yet. But if you build a big palace there, it kind of becomes your own land. So he starts building palaces right on the border, and each palace underneath has a prison inside. And, and the most famous one is called Machairus. So Machairus is right off the Sea of Galilee. It's the it's cross, the sea from... Uh, Herod the Great's great uh, palace that he had. And Machiris is where we're told by Josephus that John the Baptist is in prison. So now I'm going to continue reading here. And with that information in mind, I want you to see what kind of comes forward as we read through this text, now that you know some of this context of what's going on. So we'll go back to verse 3. It says, Now Herod arrested John and bound him And put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John. But he was afraid of the people. Because they considered John a prophet. So Herodias here, Herod, Philip's wife. Herod Philip has not passed away or anything. Uh, he's still around. It's just he is now, she has now gone uh, to the other brother. And notice here what it says, Herod's desires are with John. Herod, Herod's not keeping John only in prison because he kind of likes him or because he respects him or because he thinks that he might be a prophet. He's keeping him in prison because he's afraid of the people. Because how do you stay in power? You stay in power, by you continue to pay your taxes, and they're heavy taxes. You continue to gather them from the people and give them to the empire, and you don't let rebellion start. He saw what happened to his older brother, and he's a fox, so he knows what he's doing. He needs to pay his taxes, he'll do that, he'll make sure that happens by the sword, and he needs to stop rebellions from happening. So he arrests John, and he's afraid that that if he just kills him, that that the people who think John's a prophet, that they might rebel against him. And then he's got Rome to deal with. So he puts John in prison in Machiris. Verse 6. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias, this is his niece now, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised an oath to her, whatever she asked. Now I'll let you draw your own conclusions as to what it pleased Herod so much means. Uh, but it's pretty safe to assume, it's actually very safe to assume, it's not innocent, all right? <laughs> uh, This is not uh, something remotely appropriate for a niece and an uncle. And it's in front of all the guests, and Herod then offers the girl, she's probably about 14 at this time, or according to Josephus, she is 14. uh, He says, I will give you whatever you ask. So what does she do? She goes and asks her mom for advice. See, this was a pretty foolish move by Herod here because he's put his honor on the line. So It's in front of all the guests. He's invited all these guests to this party, and, and this has happened, and he's made this oath. He's made this promise to this young girl, probably expects her to ask for some money or, may, or maybe one of his castles or, or one, of, you know, one of his palaces, something like that. Um, but he's put his honor on the line. So he can't go back on his word Because all he has is these people (laughs) and their respect, right? But he's put himself in this foolish place. Verse 8. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist is at that very same palace. He's downstairs. He's in the prison. We're told earlier that Herod didn't plan on killing John. Because the people thought that John was a prophet. So now he's really between a rock and a hard place. What does he do? Does he lose his honor in front of all these people and risk rebellion? Or, and, and, and hold off rebellion? Or, or does he follow through and risk open rebellion in his area, which, which means he could just risk all the power and authority he has. He could be like his brother living in an ancient Gaul. Verse 9, Herod was in distress. Not because he loved John. (laughs) It tells us right now. Herod was in distress because his oath and his dinner guests. And then he ordered that her request be granted. And he had John beheaded in the prison. And his head brought up, on a platter, and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. This is a truly tragic and cruel world. That's the world that the New Testament enters into. This is not, um, as much as it is kind of rare in some parts of the New Testament, it's not rare in the first century world. This level of brutality, this level of cruelness, when we talk about light entering into darkness, this is the kind of darkness that was just par for the course. This is the kind of uh, not caring about human life that was just commonplace, that was, that, was, that was almost seen as normal to them, almost seen as regular to them. Um... this brutal ending for such for such a great man for such a hero of the new testament Matthew 11 verse 11 Jesus talks about John and Jesus says this he says truly I tell you among those born of women there has ne- there among those born of women there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist and then he goes on and says, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. But, but that, is a strong, uh, that, that is a strong affirmation, <laughs> straight from the lips of Jesus, to who John is. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And this is how his life ends. This is how his earthly ministry ends. And we read on in verse 12 that John's disciples came and they took his body and they buried it. And they went on and they told Jesus. Verse 13 When Jesus heard what had happened he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. Then it goes on, and I won't go through it, but it goes on with the very uh, commonly preached story in the New Testament of Jesus feeding the 5,000. So Jesus leaves by boat. He goes off to a solitary place. The people won't leave him alone. They travel all the way out to him. He has compassion on them. He sees that they're hungry, and he ends up feeding them out there in the wilderness. That's the context that leads up to uh, this miracle that we talk about, but we don't often talk about this first half. Like what, what was going on to Jesus at the time? As I said, I mean, this first century world, it's it's a cruel place. And when we enter into the Bible, sometimes. Uh, I feel like we do it, or maybe I can just speak to myself, that, that I do it, and I kind of do it only through the lens of what Scripture tells me. And, and then we miss out on some of just the harshness of what's going on, some of the darkness of what's going on. Why did Herod do what he did? Because he wanted power and control and authority, and he wanted to hold on to it with all that he had, and he was willing to do absolutely anything to do it, absolutely anything. You know, we read the the New Testament, and, and I'm just as guilty as anyone else. We often put ourselves into the best character's roles. We think that if we were there that we'd be like one of the disciples or something. That we'd be following Jesus. That that we would be doing all these great things. But then in moments where you evaluate your own life, you start to think, what are my motives in life? How do I behave? How do I treat other people? Have I ever used someone else for my own gain? Have I ever used someone else so that I could gain? Maybe power, maybe some authority, maybe some people's respect, maybe even finances and wealth. Now, I'm not saying we're all Herod. Herod's a pretty bad example. But I'm saying on the continuum, sometimes I think we put ourselves pretty far on the holy side. And without Jesus, we're not even close. Without Jesus in our lives, I think we're more like Herod (laughs) than we are like Jesus. That's our natural selves. That's who we are left to our own devices. That's who we are when when I look at only myself. You know, John's main... Uh, Message. His main goal, as I've been saying this entire series, is that that he points people towards Jesus, he steps aside, he points others towards who Jesus is, and then in that moment, uh, he's able to kind of fade away. And that's actually what we see happen through the rest of the gospel. When John uh, dies, even though it is brutal and it is tragic, many of his disciples then go straight to Jesus. Remember verse 1, before we went back in time. Herod the Tetrarch, this Herod, heard reports about Jesus and he said to his attendants, is this John the Baptist? Has he risen from the dead? That's why miraculous powers are at work in him. He starts to question who even even this jesus is because because he's a lot, he's kind of like john but john has john has stepped off the stage john has left john's earthly ministry is done and now jesus enters even more in the gospel of matthew even more onto the center stage many of john's disciples immediately turn and start following jesus he, he actually does the ultimate sign of stepping aside and pointing others towards Christ. And then to go back to where we started, the question becomes, in our own lives, are we the main character? Do we still think that we are on stage? That if they were going to make a TV show, anyone seen the Truman Show? Remember that one? It was, that, it was Jim Carrey, but it was more things, and, and it was very nice. And then we look at our own lives, and if, and if we back up, we look at how we behave, and, and it's like we think we're on the Truman Show. Like, like everyone's going to look at, at you and what you did, how you behaved. i got to tell you, the best thing anyone can say about you is that they pointed other people towards Jesus. They were a person that was willing to step out of the light. They were willing to step aside, to get off the stage and to say, just look at who my Savior is. Just look at who this Jesus is. Often when I'm preaching up here, it's not every week, but often when I am, right, when I come up on the stage, we have the screen go up, and, and that was from when I first started, because I just love the stained glass cross that's behind it, uh, the screen's fine, it's nice to know the words of the songs, uh, but the stained glass cross, and, and sometimes it shines light, kind of that direction, if you're in the sanctuary. And, and I've always joked with, with Jim Lean and with others, I'm like, okay, well fine, then they'll look at the cross instead of me. <laughs> Good. <laughs> if you want to stare at the beautiful stained glass cross, go ahead. <laughs> Please just let me leave the stage. <laughs> oh, and, and the only reason I, I think I'm even up here is that I, I look at scripture and I, I kind of uh, show it to you all and we walk through it together, but, but this is the only authority. And, and we're and the, yeah, sometimes we live our lives like like somehow we're on center stage. Like everyone should look at us. Like we're going to influence people towards Jesus. If you don't know what an influencer, don't worry about it. Some of you do. <laughs> and and it can just be as simple as as just pointing the people in our lives to who our Savior is? When's the last time you told them? These people that are precious to us, these people that are near to us, if this is what you believe, if this is who you follow, if you are his disciple, if you're following after, when's the last time he talked about it with them? I mentioned this after Fourth of July weekend. Maybe you were just all together with those people the people that come to mind when I talk about the most precious people in your lives. I think John the Baptist, the reason I wanted to do this whole sermon series, I think he is a beautiful model for a Christian. He he does his ministry. He does his ministry that he's called to do. He's called in in powerful ways by God to do things, and, and he does them wholeheartedly. And then when it becomes time, when it becomes the exact moment, he gets out of the way, and, and he points at Jesus, and he says, there's the Lamb of God. Don't follow me. <laughs> that's what John says. He says, don't follow, don't follow me anymore. That, that's the one that I've been talking about the whole time. Seek after him.